Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. Today on Intersections, we are starting with our take on the week's human rights news. Here to do that with me is Catherine Zhu, a research intern with the Human Rights Initiative. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Marty. So what's our first headline for today? So our first news item is on the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which went into effect on June 21st after being adopted by Congress in December 2021. I know that you recently wrote a piece on this for CSIS, so could you tell us more about what the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is and how it will work in practice? So it imposes a blanket ban on all goods from Xinjiang entering the United States on the assumption that because forced labor is so widespread in that region, we should assume that any product that is produced there was made with forced labor. It imposes this ban unless companies can prove that their particular product or shipment was not made with forced labor. And it's particularly focused on, initially, some of the most high-risk sectors that Xinjiang produces, cotton and other apparel products, tomatoes and tomato paste, and high-tech goods like solar panels and wind turbines. Interesting. And I'm wondering what the reaction of the U.S. companies has been in all of this, and how do you think this will affect U.S. supply chains? So the law bans all goods from Xinjiang from entering the United States unless the importer can prove that that good was not made with forced labor. That's an incredibly high bar given the state of the labor situation in Xinjiang. And so the Department of Homeland Security put out a strategy last week with some guidance to importers outlining the steps that they need to take to demonstrate that their good is eligible to enter the United States, particularly for for some of these high-risk sectors that I just mentioned. The positive thing for companies is that there's now some clarity in terms of how the government will enforce this ban. There was a lot of concern, almost panic among companies, that when this law went into effect, nobody would know whether their shipments would be able to enter the United States or not. Now that there's some guidance and it's clear which sectors they're focused on and what the specific steps companies will need to take to show that their goods are eligible for entry. I think a lot of companies are able to adapt their practices and their policies to be able to maintain their supply chains. So it sounds like U.S. companies have already been adapting to the new act. And on the other side of this law, do you think that this law will work and actually help to reduce forced labor in Xinjiang and to improve the human rights standards of the products consumed in the U.S.? 
So that's the question, right? Because as much as the U.S. is a really important import market, we're not the only place that China ships these goods to. In fact, we're a minority of the market for most of these products. And so although we can help change company practice and we can help raise company standards, it's going to take a much more global effort to really put enough pressure on those industries and on the Chinese government to move manufacturing, for example, out of Xinjiang. So there needs to be a broader strategy to get other countries to adopt a similar ban. The G7, for example, has made some previous commitments to get forced labor out of their supply chains, and that could be very influential if other G7 countries adopt a similar ban. We also need to work on countries in Central Asia and other countries in Asia that are major importers of goods from Xinjiang and and more broadly from China. Moving across the pond to another news item of the week, we have the UK government's efforts to send asylum seekers arriving in the UK to Rwanda, where the British government's legal responsibilities for these people would end. And asylum seekers would only be able to apply for asylum in Rwanda, where there are serious human rights concerns. So Catherine, what's the motivation for trying to send asylum seekers arriving in the UK to Rwanda? Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been arguing that this is a way of deterring human traffickers by making travel to the UK less attractive. This seems to me uh, to be potentially in gross violation of the UK's obligation to allow asylum seekers an opportunity to find safety in, in the country that they flee to. I know the European Court on Human Rights had something to say about this plan. What was their decision? So the first flight to Rwanda, which was carrying just seven asylum seekers, was canceled because the European Court of Human Rights issued a last-minute injunction to stop the flight from taking off for one person, which was then applied to everyone else on the flight. So the decision sparked an outcry among the Tories, and Johnson then threatened to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. And the European court's decision was essentially a temporary one, saying that because the asylum seekers still had legal proceedings going on in the UK, they couldn't be deported in the meantime. So does that mean this issue is going to come back up again in the coming weeks? Yes, I know that Johnson's government is planning to challenge the ruling, and already they're trying to push a replacement to the Human Rights Act with a new Bill of Rights that would weaken the Strasbourg court's power over how British courts interpret law. Let's move on to our last topic of the day, which is the world of sports and human rights. This is not a topic we often think of in the context of human rights, but it's been quite a week in the world of sports. Tell us what's going on. The last two weeks have seen a controversy around the establishment of a new Saudi-backed live golf tournament that has attracted a number of top golf pros. This has been controversial because it is being backed by the Saudi Investment Fund, which is headed by the Crown Prince, who was alleged to be responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a journalist at the Washington Post. And these top golfers who have decided to join this league are aware of the human rights record of the Saudis. What do they have to say about that? Phil Mickelson said, and I quote, the Saudis are scary to get involved with. We know they killed Khashoggi and they have a horrible record on human rights. He also said they execute people for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? And the reason I assume is because of the money. The Lyft Tour is offering a ton of money to get big name players just to participate. So Mickelson is reportedly being offered $200 million just to play. And for comparison, this is double what he has earned in his entire 30-year career. 
So this is a really interesting trend that we're seeing around sports where governments that have mixed records or negative records on human rights are using sporting events, cultural events, and other international opportunities to sort of show off their country. And and in this case, we call it sort of sports washing, right? Give themselves a better reputation by sponsoring these sorts of things. And the question is what the consequences should be for athletes or countries or, or companies that participate in those kinds of sport washing activities. And that's a question that we're going to ask our guests later on in the program. But that's not the only sports and human rights story in the news this week. Just the other day, FIFA announced the 2026 World Cup host cities here in the United States and in Mexico and Canada. Tell us why that's also a human rights story. This is the first time that host countries and host cities were asked to provide human rights risk assessment plan as part of their bid. And there were a number of commitments made by these cities regarding human rights. And the reason this matters is that FIFA is a huge business opportunity that brings millions of dollars to the economy. So a 2018 U.S. soccer study actually suggested that FIFA could create over $5 billion in economic activity in North America. And host cities would have between $160 and $620 million in economic activity. It's not clear how much of these economic benefits will actually go to workers. Without safeguards like local hiring and diversity directives or unionized labor discrimination protections for workers. That's really interesting. And tell us what the labor movement here in the United States is saying about their expectations from the World Cup. The AFL-CIO, which is the largest confederation of labor unions in the U.S., is leading a coalition called Dignity 2026, which is pushing for more concrete labor rights commitments from FIFA and from the host cities. And they met with FIFA representatives in April, but commented that FIFA is still not doing enough to consult and partner with labor movements. For example, by working with municipalities to put in clearer labor standards or coming up with concrete promises to ensure that economic benefits go to underprivileged communities. So this is going to be a really interesting story to follow over the next few months and few years as the 11 U.S. cities and five Mexican and Canadian cities prepare to host these games. Up next, I spoke with Mary Harvey, a former Olympian and FIFA soccer winner, who is the founder and CEO of the Center for Sport and Human Rights about this topic. Great. Well, welcome, Mary. We're so excited to have you on the podcast, and we're especially excited that you're here with us in person. You're actually our first in-person podcast guest. So welcome to CSIS. Life after COVID. Well. Absolutely. So wonderful to have you. First of all, just tell me a little bit more about your background in sports and then how you got interested in human rights. (laughs) Well, that's a really interesting journey, actually. So a female athlete, so member of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team for eight years. So 91 World Cup, 96 Olympics. So that's the sports side of it. And then, you know, I think just having an experience of being a female athlete at a time when the women's team was, you know, it wasn't about equal pay. It was about you know, more basic things, but nonetheless critical things. So I definitely had an impression about what it felt like to be not equal, let me put it that way. So I've had numerous back surgeries because I played on bad fields. The men got the nice fields. We got the, you know, the the inferior fields. So I, I understood that. I felt that viscerally. Fast forward, life after sports, I go to business school and I'm working in corporate America for, you know, some consulting firms. And then I have an opportunity to go to work at FIFA. 
So I end up inside the walls of FIFA for five years. And, um, and then I did a bunch of other things. But when I heard that the U.S. was going to be bidding when they opened bidding for 2026, um, and it was going to be a 48-team World Cup, massive, biggest World Cup ever, right? And, and it would be multiple countries. I said, I, I want in. Yeah, how Absolutely, I want that? in, right? Mm-hmm. As this, I mean, I remember life before the 94 World Cup and life after the 94 World Cup. Inflection point in the sport of soccer in the country. So I wanted in. I show up and they say, well, I know, you know, you want to work on the sustainability team, but this whole human rights stuff is new and nobody knows it. And we need somebody who knows it, who becomes an expert on it. And so that's how the journey started. And it was interesting because this is 2017. Imagine the world in 2017. Imagine what was going on. And sort of this anecdotal, well, you know, there aren't a whole lot of human rights issues. This shouldn't be so difficult. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's a few human rights issues to tackle there. Yeah, yeah. right. So that, that began the journey. And so that resulted in me jumping into over the next nine weeks, just intensive engagement with human rights stakeholders, civil society, human rights watch, others, and understanding what the risks were, because I didn't know them. And I learned about normative standards, the ILO conventions and 182 and human rights conventions and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. This was all new. And the UN guiding principles, I don't know what those were. Nobody in sport knows what those are. And so now you have, that led me to the work that I do now, which is I'm the the CEO for the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Amazing. What a journey. And everything that you talked about is so timely for what's in the news right now. So I want to hit some of those topics. Um, The first one we just talked about in the news segment a little bit is this issue around the new Saudi Gulf League and all of these professional golfers going off to play for the for the Saudi tournament. I was just curious first, you know, when you were a professional athlete, did you think about those kinds of issues around where you played, who you were sponsored by? Did those kinds of conversations happen back then? No, not really. I mean, distressing when, you know, the supply chain issues around the manufacture of soccer balls came to light in the early 90s, I believe. Um, or mid-90s, concerning for sure. Like we're kicking those around thinking, wow, some poor young Pakistani child was forced to make that ball. I mean, that's not great, but nothing like it is today. Yeah, and so what what advice would you give sports figures who are facing these, these questions now? I mean, I'm curious what you think about this particular league, but even before that in general, sort of as, as athletes think about these kinds of human rights questions for the first time, what's their framework? How do they think about that? Well, that's a great question. And this is where I think there's such an opportunity for growth. We're seeing athlete voice today more prominent than ever, right? In the past, you had, I mean, indelible moments like John Carlos and Tommy Smith in 1968 and Harry Edwards, this brilliant professor, you know, on sociology who's advising athlete activists to use their voice. Fast forward to Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee and all these things, but athlete voice has become so prominent. They care. Well, guess what? It's probably linked very closely to social media. These athletes are now being asked questions by their fans. And how do you feel about? What are your thoughts about this or that, right? And Megan Rapinoe, right? As, As sports bodies are now talking about banning transgender athletes, you have 
Megan Rapinoe speaking out and saying certain things. And these athletes know what they're talking about. They, it, they're not just winging it. Yeah. But not all athletes, which is where we bring come to wood golf. Everyone makes mistakes. Like, that's not an informed comment, right? That's what you say when someone gets a DUI, not when you're talking about Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Yeah, it's been unusual to see this coverage. As you said, most of the time, the coverage of athletes speaking out is in support of human rights issues. And this time you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing this critique of people who have seemingly disregarded the human rights concerns. What do you think about their decision? What should be the response of other athletes and, and sports associations? Well, I mean, if you look at what they've done, right, it's a sport that's not unionized, that's primarily reliant on individual athletes, independent contractors. So they've gone right over the top and they've thrown a lot of money at people like Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman and others. So there's a whole lot to unpack there, right? Because as independent contractors, they may have an opinion about, well, what are their options other than doing live golf? And do they agree with those options? Do they have, you know, worker rights issues with that? I don't know. However, because sport and human rights is so salient now, people are talking about it. You have the Qatar World Cup. You have, you know, the Beijing Olympics that happened at the beginning of this year. You have Formula One in Bahrain and, you know, Kuwait. It's everywhere. And so if you think you're not going to get asked the question, you're kidding yourself. And sure enough, they're asking the question. You'd think for $200 million, there'd be a little bit of PR work around here's how you answer these questions. Right. But you can see that there isn't. So when it comes to accountability, right, so where does it lie? Where does the obligation lie for due diligence? Well, the athletes are making these decisions. They're entering to these partnerships. So the athletes themselves, they're getting these questions and they're being asked questions like, well, how would you feel about, you know, if South Africa in the apartheid years, would you have gone to play for them? You know, that's hypothetical. Not that hypothetical. I mean, so... The, the due diligence part, because athletes are brands. Their name stands for things. And so the due diligence around what their brand and name stands for matters to their fans. And do you think that their reputation and their fan base will suffer because of this? Do you see them facing consequences? Well, I guess it depends on how you feel about Saudi Arabia, right? And how you feel about their record, track record on human rights and whether or not that's relevant. Certainly, it should be part of any, you know, major economic partnership, be it an owner of a club, right? We've seen with Chelsea, Roman Abramovich having to divest to to others. There's due diligence around, you know, what is involved here. And we're seeing more and more of that in sport. And golf is just the beginning, right? You look at swimming, golf, you're going to see more and more, particularly individual sports, where this is going to happen. So you referenced a few minutes ago some of the other sports and human rights stories in the news. This year is really bookended by them, right? We started the year with the Beijing Olympics amidst egregious human rights abuses in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs. We're going to end the year with the World Cup in Qatar and all of the labor abuses associated with that. And talk a little bit more about those human rights issues because it sets up 2026 really well. Like, yeah. what, are the, what are the things that needed to change in Qatar to make that situation at least improved in terms of labor rights? So Qatar is a country of, you know, a few hundred thousand Qataris and the rest of the population of the country are migrant workers. And in this case, um, from a variety of different parts of the world, Southeastern Asia, Southwestern Asia, Northern Africa, Central Africa, 
um, a variety of different groups of workers, and the issues were around their working conditions, so health and safety, but also they're being housed, they're being, right, so they live there, being housed there, fed there. What are those working conditions in extreme heat? What is their voice if there's a grievance? So if they're saying, hey, I don't feel like this is safe, or I haven't been paid, there's wage theft, there aren't unions there. So the, the power dynamic between the employers and those that, that are doing this work were extreme, the power differentials. And so what happens is you have wage theft, you have unsafe working conditions, you have you know, cases of heat illness and things like this. And then there's the whole issue of, well, if they don't work for this employer that they have their visa for, can they move elsewhere? Well, the law didn't allow them to, right? They could only work for that employer and they couldn't go elsewhere. So that, again, reinforces that power dynamic. So not only can you, do you have to work in unsafe conditions, but you can't leave those you can't conditions. can't leave, right? Yeah. And then there was the whole issue of recruiting fees. So it puts them in, in basically a situation where they're indebted before they even get out of the gate, right? Which is, which is difficult. I mean, most of these workers are sending money home to their families, right? So lots and lots of stuff to unpack there. But, and this is where the Supreme Committee comes in, where they instituted a program, the Worker Welfare Program, that looked at, the construction sector, right, as stadiums were being built from, you know, joint inspections with BWI. Now, this is a country that doesn't allow unions, and they do an MOU with a union, bring them in and start doing joint safety inspections. That's positive. What's also interesting is, is that you have engagement with civil society and unions in Qatar, not so in other parts of the Gulf. There isn't that sort of willingness to engage with civil society and others. And do you attribute that to the World Cup coming in and the attention and the pressure on them? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I, I don't have knowledge of Qatar prior to, you know, the World Cup being awarded. Certainly the visibility around the World Cup, also the blockade, right, and their response to the blockade. But, you know, they would argue that they've been different in their approach for, for a while. But let's go to 2026 and some of those issues. Last week, FIFA announced the host cities for the 2026 World Cup to go back to something that you worked on a few years ago. And we now know which cities in the U.S., Mexico and Canada are going to host World Cup events. But there's a human rights angle to that, too, for the first time. What are the human rights issues around the World Cup that cities need to be addressing? I'm going to give you sort of the three sectors that we looked at. So there's the construction sector. There's the hospitality sector, so all the hotels and everything else, catering, transportation sector, and then you have the security sector. So that's actually four. So in the life cycle of a mega sporting event, you go sort of procurement, right? How you, you source everything and making sure there's human rights risks addressed there. And then you go into construction or in this case, overlay. You're not building stadiums, but you have overlays that are happening. So there are human rights challenges when it comes to each one of those sectors. And that's true in any country. So if you talk to the labor movement here, they would say, well, we have questions around, you know, enforcement of the minimum standards of ILO, you know, 182, right? And making sure that those core conventions are being realized, even though national law in some states might not, you know, necessarily provide those same protections. So um, fair wage, fair, right, living wage, you hear about it a lot, right? What's that mean? And, and sort of having, despite differences between the three countries and the three, uh, and the states within, you know, the country where there'll be, these uh, matches will be held, there's going to be different rules in each one of them. 
can we all agree that there, and this is what the labor movement's asking for, is do we have a, a sort of common understanding of what it looks like across the whole event? Across all three countries and all the That's cities. That's right, yeah. 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 And how, break down for us the, the responsibilities of the different actors here, because you have three national governments, not just one, within our country and actually Mexico and Canada, you have a very federal decentralized system, which means every city is in a different state with its own set of laws. Every municipality with its own sets of laws, right? And then overlay on top of that, you've got FIFA and their rules, right? And their expectations. And as you said, international norms and standards that everyone's expected to abide by. So so who's making the decisions that are going to be most impactful on human rights and and sort of where is the where should the focus be between now and 2026 if you want to make this a a rights respecting World Cup? Well, you start with the rights. <laughs> and also just the added level of complexity is in some cases you have the airport in one city and you have the stadium in another city and then you have the headquarters of the event in a third city, New York, right? So you have New Jersey, then you have JFK Airport and then you have, you know, down to you know, Manhattan, right? So yeah. you've also got different municipalities potentially at play here and it's complicated. So what the requirements asked for was let's start with the normative standards and say this is what they are. How are you going to ensure that those normative standards are upheld And if there are gaps in laws or practice, how will you fill those gaps? So then you, if you start from that basis and then you go into, okay, so now we're in this city, in this state, in this country, where are potentially the gaps given the risks? And the risks will differ depending on the state, depending on the municipality, right? The risks will look different. In some cities, it may be policing. There are concerns or have been concerns that's relevant because police forces, there are going to be fans coming into the city. And if there are issues with the police force before fans come into the city, now you've got twice the number of people in the city of all different colors and things like that. There could be issues. If there are issues with journalists, right, reporting on things that people don't want them reporting on, you can see how that could be made worse if you're hosting the largest sporting event on the planet, right? Right, <laughs> right. right. So, so these, these risks that are already present become amplified if you throw in the activities and what's going to happen when that city is hosting the world. Just as exacerbating the underlying challenges 100%. in those places. Yeah. So this is where yeah. you identify what those underlying issues are and put in a process because things change. Politics change people change. No one saw COVID coming, right? All these sorts of things. So it's most important that there's a process in place where you're understanding how your risks are changing over time and how you respond to them. So you fill those gaps. And who is doing the sort of monitoring and evaluation of progress over the next four years? Four years is a long time. We've got a lot of lead in time before these events, which is good in the sense that we can make some significant changes, but it's challenging to maintain a focus on an issue like this that's so far out in the future. So are you guys gonna be sort of monitoring this on an ongoing basis? Is there a group of NGOs, labor groups that are gonna be focused on this? Well, the wonderful thing about this event is that from the bidding stage, stuff was in the public domain. The human rights strategy was in the public domain. The risk assessment, the independent risk assessment was in the public domain. These are all hooks that civil society and the labor movement can then get into and say, hey, we're also concerned about this. Can we talk about this? The human rights plans for the cities are in the public domain. That was a requirement. 
all of this enables accountability, right? Now, accountability won't be any one actor, right? And this is why with the center, we talk about an ecosystem. There are many different ways where accountability happens, but it starts with sort of the know and show, and this is the show, the transparency around, you know, these key areas of it, but also over time, giving civil society through robust stakeholder engagement an opportunity to play an active role, not just sitting on the sidelines saying, hey, we're concerned about this, actually giving them, enrolling them in being a part of the implementation. It's a lot to take on. And so I guess last question for you is just looking out a few months to the next World Cup and then four years to the to the one after that. I don't want to put all the responsibility on civil society and labor groups to sort of enforce these things. What do you want to see out of the national governments that are engaged either with the host countries, with Qatar in the next few months, or, you know, the responsibilities of the U.S., Mexico, Canadian governments to kind of address these human rights issues as they take on these these huge mega sporting events and put themselves on a global stage. And as a CODA, I will also ask, we can't let FIFA and other sporting bodies off the hook, IOC, etc. What do you want to see from them going forward on human rights? I would like to see stay the course. So, you know, politics change. And we're in a current political climate now in each of the three countries. Between now and 2026, any one of those things could change. It could change at a state level. So stay the course, right, for ups and downs and everything else. And the way you stay the course is you lay the infrastructure down now and make it public so that everybody understands that this is, this is what this the is commitments the are. This is the game plan, right? These are the commitments. And so if it's being sorted out, those commitments, while there's change in the environment, then it gets a lot harder. So I would say stay the course, continue to commit to transparency, in the process and to engaging with stakeholders. And stakeholders are civil society, but also others, right? And the, the final point, my coda, is for the first time, we have three countries involved in putting together. We share two borders, right? So to the north and to the south. We have an opportunity from a human rights legacy to look at collaborating three governments together at looking at what do we have in common that we care about? Combating human trafficking, for sure, right? Who's going to be the best place to do that? Well, the cities, but also the state, right? The governments, the federal governments. Promotion and prevention of discrimination against women. All three governments have made that a priority, right? What does that look like through the lens of their role as being host nation for millions of visitors who are going to be coming into, into the continent? Right? So it's about finding those similarities on human rights that all three countries have already committed to and bringing those to life. And that's the opportunity that is there because of this event. That's fascinating. Well, it's really exciting to hear what's coming down the pike and to put that human rights lens on a subject that we all love to watch and to play in our lives, but don't always think about this angle on. So thank you so much for your insights and for your policy advice. It's been great having you. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having us on. And um, thank you for the work that you do as well. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.